pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice on it. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Angreement. I'm Catherine. And I'm Michelle. And every other week... I'm, got it. I still come back. I got it. So good. Every other week, we come to you with three things. We have a weird thing, a pop culture thing, and a research thing. And then we try to make them fit all together like a fortune cookie that you can take off with you for the next two weeks. And my notes say that, Michelle, this week you go first. Here I am going first. So this is kind of cheating, but um, my research thing is not very well researched or thought through. So <laughs> I'm going to bring you two weird things to make up Ooh, for it. I'm here for it. My first weird thing is a show and tell, which is great for a podcast, you know, such a visual medium that it is. So first, Catherine, did you know about... Oh, it just <laughs> No, which, which. <laughs> so, all right. For those of you who can't see, which is literally everyone. Um, Stop. <laughs> okay. We are recording on, on Zoom. <laughs> and I just switched the view to immersive view, which is something that showed up on the latest. I don't know. I feel like Zoom tries to update every 12 hours now. It um, just changes the buttons around usually. This is an actual update. Let me let me see if there's another one. So we're looking at the immersive view, which is instead of like looking at the little boxes, there's all these different, like you can put yourself into, oh, here, a fireside chat so that we can sit in front of a fire and talk instead of wherever it was we were before. So, but... I don't, it just feels like I almost used it in a class today. So I was like, oh, maybe this would be cooler if everybody looked like they were sitting. There's one that's a classroom. I'll pull it up for you so you can see it. But I don't, it's not going to look very cool because, you know, there's two of us and there's 25 seats. But would that make the students feel more like in a space? Like in a, would this give a better sense oh. of like, oh, we're in a classroom together? Yeah. And like, for me, it's like cutting my head out. So I look like I'm in the seat, but you, it's still using your full thing. So I guess it would probably depend on like how their settings are turned on. So, yeah. I also don't have the most updated version, which is probably hurting things. Mm. I'm going to put us back on regular view though. You're back. We're back. We're not in our, we're not immersed anymore. So I guess my weird thing is just like, I, I the zoom immersive view particularly made me think about it, but I've been seeing all these things like since we've been doing so much online of trying to create more mobile like experiences. Like there's one where I haven't tried it because it costs money. Um, but there's one where you're like a little, 
avatar. And if you walk towards a crowd, it brings you into that conversation with those microphones. And if you walk away from it, it leaves it. And if you walk, so like you literally can walk on the screen like you're playing like Zelda or what, like one of the old school video games that have the little map where you can walk to other groups of people. And when you're close to that group of people, you can hear their microphones and they can hear you. But when you're away from them, then Ooh. you can't. And I just like, it makes me think Facebook too. Didn't they just do like their, they keep trying to push virtual reality and they have their, they announced like last week, their virtual reality office space. Oh, I didn't their see that. meetings. Like they're like, okay, people aren't really loving virtual reality for gaming so much that hasn't taken off. Oh, but this now, this is the big thing that you just have conferences with your VR headset and it is, you're just in an office space. In VR, having conferences together. It might be because I am particularly at a position to not be that affected by the, by the negatives of this because I am, I am an introvert to my core. And I am also, um, I have aphantasia, which we talked about on here. So I don't like visuals are just not as important to me because I don't, that's not how I think or remember things anyway. So I'm trying to like be empathetic to people because I have friends who are like, I can't talk on like I can't talk to you on zoom I can't meet on zoom I'm sorry it's just too much for me like I I feel so drained by it it's not engaging and they're like very interesting because yeah I've heard of people feeling so drained by zoom and I I don't really feel that way it's not the same as being like I understand it's not the same as being in a real space with people when we hung out like we talked about last podcast the way the conversation could flow and you could have silences. And then pretty much the week after we came back from that, we had like a game night on Zoom and the conversation was so different and yeah. like awkward. So there is something to it, but it doesn't, for, for me, there's just an awkwardness, not a draining. Yeah, but I think that that awkward, I think you're right that it's a technological issue. Like it's something we, in fact, we probably have the technology to fix that right like a lot of it is just like who can you hear and who can you like how are you experiencing right it It was a lot of like two people talking at time at a time and you can't hear them both or you can't see everyone exactly the same way and they're working on that I just I'm just about to be um apart from my husband for a few months and we got the Amazon video when we're apart we want to have dinner together I can just put him sit him at the end of the table. We can eat dinner together. I am going to put a towel over her when I'm, as I'm not using it. Cause that's the thing I know that those cameras are so hackable. You should not have them in your house. And I will say like, I do think it's awkward when there's like four of us trying to play board games, but like when you and I are just chatting, like before we start the yeah. podcast, that feels fine to me. Like that feels one-on-one. Yeah. It feels yeah. like there is, Oh, what is it called? Oh, I should remember it. Um, it's called like the golden box. That's not the right name. I'll put a link to it in the show notes if anyone's interested. But it is this amazing project. Portals project. Where they basically bring in a shipping container and you go into the shipping container. They paint them bright gold. So Ooh, that's why I think, I think this is one of your research things one time. Maybe it was. It was so amazing. And um, you basically go inside of it and they have a floor to ceiling set up but it is life-size, floor-to-ceiling, and the technology is so good. It's really a mind trip that it seems like the people are sitting across from you, that you could touch them. 
and there's no lag. But that technology was so good. Yeah. I think that those immersive, truly immersive experience, Zoom has not figured it out yet. That is not doing it for me. But I do think that like, if as we continue to make that more accessible and to continue to hold that to higher expectations, I'm pretty excited about it. Like I know that there's negatives to it, but I'm pretty excited about being able to stay connected with people in a virtual way. I mean, and not just because of pandemics, but because people live all over the world and because like, I feel like, you know, with climate change and not wanting to dry, like there's just a lot of, a lot of ways that I think it can be, it can be exciting. Yeah. I think for better or worse, and I think it largely will be reasons that are worse. I do, if I had to make predictions, we're all going to be in our homes a lot more in the upcoming decades. Yeah. I want my family to be in my home with me. So thanks, Zoom. So that is your first weird That's thing. That's my first weird thing, which ended up being a lot longer than I expected you to be. I expected to be like, have you seen this? Okay. I think if people don't want to do grab bags, they should do grab bag like challenges. You don't have to talk about it just throw something at us to talk about and we just like extemporaneous speech. We don't write scripts for these, but you should see my notes are usually like four words long. So my real weird thing, I added this one at the last minute when I saw what Zoom was doing. My real weird thing is, have you heard about Bishop Sycamore? No. Okay. So I I don't fully understand this because I don't follow sports, but apparently ESPN is I guess as because of COVID related things is having a hard time finding enough footage to fill their constant. Oh, let me show you all of these, the sports scene all the time. Right. Um, (laughs) Sports scene. Yes. (laughs) So they, there's a big push for high school level, like content, like the live plays of high school games, which I've been to high school games and I didn't want to do it, even though I was supporting people there. So Yeah. There was a game between a school named Bishop Sycamore. I think they're from Ohio, maybe. And they played a school called IMG Academy, which IMG Academy is like a charter school, like a legitimate school with students in it. And Bishop Sycamore. It's weird to me that you need to preface that. I'm very and why we have to say it is a legitimate school. So IMG Academy lost to Bishop Sycamore really, 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 really badly. So badly that during the game, they they scored zero. But I think I think IMG Academy scored like 57 or something. A lot. It was a lot to zero. And it was so bad that during the game, the ESPN commentators were like, um, is this, are they a real school? Like, is this, what's really happening? Like, like, did they scam us to get in here? It turns out, yes. It turns out, yes, they did. Um, so (laughs) this is, this is, I'm going to give you an abbreviated timeline and I'll send this for, to be put in the show notes. Back in fall of 2018, Roy Johnson founded something called Christians of Faith Academy that was designed to be an at-risk youth help school, um, got investigated for alleged fraud when people questioned whether there were actually any classes taking place. And then their school's license was revoked. Youth Build Centurions, founded in Columbus, Ohio, was basically that rebranded, retooled. And there was a whole bunch of investigations into it. And it became, quote, a lightning rod for controversy in the local community, saying that, you know, the school wasn't a member of the Ohio State Athletic Association and its football records were real sketchy. There's just strange things going on. And then 
that same place um, got a match canceled in September 2019 because it had numerous players on the roster over the age of 18. So these are oh. young adults who are uh. playing at a high school. So things were getting real weird. And then um, in September of 2020, Bishop Sycamore played its first recorded football game on Max Preps, losing 35 to zero in a non-conference event. And when they were talking about it, they they just started talking about this, um, you know, this school. And the coach said, I try to encourage our athletes and our coaching staff to stay off the internet, but it's a, supposedly an online school. So they would definitely need to be on the internet because that's yeah. where all of their classes are supposed to be. And so Bishop Sycamore continues to play. They're losing really, really badly. And after this um, ESPN debacle, everybody started looking into them. And it appears that they are not a school, like that they like they don't hold classes. And so nobody really knows at this point, like who these students are or what they were, like how they came to be. And, and I think the thing that's so interesting to me is like, they're also really bad. Like you would think if you were recruiting yeah. like adults and only doing football, shouldn't you be good at it? It would, <laughs> it would be to win so that, so even if, so they would at least be mediocre. If you were like, we're going to win, you would. So the head coach got fired in the aftermath of this. And the new coach literally said, and I quote, we are not a school. It was a mistake on paperwork, a misconception. We do not offer curriculum. We are not a school. That's not what Bishop Sycamore is. And I think that's what the biggest misconception about us was. And that was our fault because that was a mistake on paperwork. So now they're arguing. Why the paperwork are they filing to actually become a school? Funny, you should ask that. I have the answer. Okay. So they are arguing that they are a post-grad football academy. No, no. <laughs> but okay, so post-grad, post-grad from high school, post post-grad football academy. But Who's very bad at football. The Ohio State Department of Education has on file from them a report that describes it as an innovative, academically accredited school and one of the best academic institutions in the country. The report features a bell schedule, academic misconduct policy, school year calendar, and transcript template. Mm, that's just like an easy mistake in paperwork. Yeah, you know, sometimes you just accidentally write out a whole bell schedule for when you're trying to say that you teach football, right? So those comments come less than a week after the founder went on all of these media outlets and was like, it is not a scam. We are academically rigorous and and I put my own son there. If it's a scam, why would I do that to my own son? I'm not going to throw away his future. And then he says, we have to make sure the website also includes the academic part of it. There's things that you learn. There's growing pains that you have. We realize that's an issue. So, I mean, I don't really, it's an ongoing story. So there is no real conclusion. Oh, we have to find out what this is. What do you, what do you think? I don't, I don't know. Because that's what I was like. I was like, why would, if they have people over 18, why are they doing this? Because they can't be like paying them, especially if they're terrible. Yeah. And if this was some sort of like online, take your money scam for school. Why would they bring attention to it by being but having a football ESPN. team? Yeah. Right? Like, because, I mean, they worked to be on ESPN. It's not like ESPN yeah. came to them like, you have to be on here. And, I, yeah, no, it doesn't. There's a lot of things that don't make any sense. And I am very curious to see what happens. Also, I, like, 
without going into too much detail about it, I was once approached by a charter school trying to enroll fake students in one of my classes. And I was like, I'm not doing this. Like, no, this is not, but they, they were taking, so they were like giving out, um, funds to, so if you homeschool in some States, not the one I'm in, you can get state funds that you can use for your education, right? Like, because you know, we all pay into taxes and if you're homeschooling then you're not using, you know, the public schools, so you can get some funds, um, and often those, you can use them to buy like books or school supplies or enroll in classes. And so there are some charter schools that bill themselves as homeschool charter schools and, um, say that they have classes that students can enroll in because they get state funding to hand out. So what they'll do is they'll tell parents, if you'll say your kids enrolled here, we'll give you, let's say $1,500 to spend on your kid's education. And then they just pocket the other 500 because they got yeah. 2000 from the state, you know? So it's, I mean, it's a real easy way. And, and literally I went to these websites and they were just like collections of YouTube videos and not even good curated collections. Yeah. Just like so that happens. These scams happen. These, this incentive to have like ghost students happens. You wouldn't, and also, these aren't ghost students because somebody showed up on the football field. So, yeah. so there are real is, physical people, and you would not draw attention to it by losing on ESPN so publicly. Oh, so, I yeah. gotta know everything that makes sense in my mind that I want to say. Well, they're laundering money, it's ghost students, it's a front. None of any illegality thing, you would not draw attention to yourself that way, which makes me think that the heart horse in front of the cart here is. We want to do football. Like they really do want to do football. And yet they are so bad at it. Why is what is happening? What if it's just like the worst football players in the world who know they don't have a chance to play anywhere else? They're all congregating at this academy. Somebody just is really trying to sell their like bad news bear script. This is, this is, we're going to find out that this is promotion for like Bad News Bear 5 football team post-grad academy loser bears. Watch. Yeah. Coming that's, to that's, I mean, at this point, that's the most logical explanation. That's the one that makes the most sense. Oh, it's just viral marketing. <laughs> ESPN's in on it. They're producing the movie. Well, I mean, isn't ESPN owned by Is Disney? So Disney almost yeah. certainly owns the movie. Yeah, I think ESPN we figured it out. ESPN doesn't have enough content. They need more stuff to put on ESPN. You know, um, well, first I want to welcome everyone to basically what is fast becoming planet Earth on our podcast and where we describe cool animal things, especially how animals have sex. I noticed we talk about animals and their weird, their weird habits and hobbies quite a bit, like, you know, animals are amazing. They're, yeah. They're amazing. And people are often very shitty. And so sometimes we just have to look elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what my weird thing is, is hinging on. Now we all know like how cool horseshoe crabs are, right? Yes, definitely. Horseshoe crabs are amazing. Um, they're blood. It's blue. It's yeah, used we, for vaccines. We harvest it. Yeah. We like yeah. have like horseshoe crab, which is, it's really disturbing because we like, uh, sorry, am I like stepping in on your weird thing? No, no. Okay. 
we harvest it like until they're almost dead. And then we like let them go to recover enough. And then we grab them back and harvest them until they're all like, it's like we drain a battery and then let it recharge. Pretty disturbing. The horseshoe crabs, we are vampires. Yeah. But the blood is very helpful. Like it does help with, I, I was reading up on that a little. That's not what this is about, but it's fascinating. It's used to detect bacterias when you're making medicines. So it's super helpful in vaccines. I know it helps with pacemakers somehow, but this was not my research thing. So I don't know how it helps with pacemakers. You only know something weird. Yeah. I just know weird. And I do know it firsthand. Um, Also, (laughs) horseshoe crabs are, I did not have sex with a horseshoe crab, Michelle. Your face just then. You got like hurt by one. (laughs) I know. Um, Horseshoe crabs and I are strictly platonic. I love them. Um, So they are also 450 million years old, which is amazing. That means they are 200 million years older than like when dinosaurs roamed the earth, which is the fact yeah, that bad. we yeah. get to look at them is so cool. It's so cool. They have 10 eyes. I love horseshoe crabs, but I don't want to talk about all that. I do want to talk about orgies, horseshoe crab orgies. You know about their blood, but do you know about how horseshoe crabs have sex? I do not. I really thought I had talked about this on the podcast. And I think it's just something that I've always had in my back pocket. Like if I can't think of a weird thing, I will. Horseshoe crab orgies is your like. (laughs) Oh, it's my, yeah. It's my like. Ace in the hole. hole. Exactly. (laughs) Horseshoe crab orgies. That's my, that's my back (laughs) go-to. So one of the reasons I was thinking about it this week too, is I just got back from the Jersey shore. I went to the beach with my family I have a lot of breathing problems, but magically, magically, I can run on the beach. I never run in real life because the minute I start, my lungs- The beach isn't real life. (laughs) It's not real life. (laughs) Magical liminal space where I am my best self, my healthiest self. Um, But really, if I try to go running in real life, immediately my lungs start to burn. I cannot breathe. It's really, really bad. Um, but for some reason on the beach, I can run and run and run, but I can run on the beach forever. So what I really like to do on vacation is wake up before the sun rises, like 5am, go out on the beach, run in the dark until the sun comes up and then go for a swim as the sun rises and then walk home. It's, it's amazing. It's a great way to fantastic perfection. So the last time I was there in 2018, I wake up at 5 a.m. I make my way down to the beach in the dark, but it was a full, it had been a full moon. So it was still really bright. And I see all these mounds in the, in the dark lit by the full moon, which is going down because the sun's about to come up and it's weird. I don't know what these mounds are, but I'm like, I'll just avoid them. And then as the sun comes up more, I see the craziest marks in the sand I've ever seen. And I've been going to the beach for like 27 plus years. So I've seen most of the marks you can see in the sand. They look so systematic that I really thought a machine had made them. Like I thought a car or a truck had made them. They were these big, big spirals. They kind of went up from the ocean and spiraled in beautiful ways. I thought that like someone had had a machine and made a sand art installation in the night. It was just remarkable. And then I got up closer 
And I saw that these big swirling spiral patterns were made by teeny, teeny, teeny little feet that looked like crab feet. And I have pictures of it, which I have to show you when we're done, because it's beautiful. I had a friend that was sad the other day and I just sent them those pictures. And they're like, this is beautiful. And I'm like, it's a, it's an orgy. <laughs> Um, cause what I then learned, cause then I'm looking around being like, what is this? And I, I followed the spirals and I noticed they went into the ocean and then I don't know how I missed this, but the mounds were just hundreds of horseshoe crabs. And I had caught them after the party. These were the stragglers, but they were basically, I'm like, what's happening? Cause I've seen horseshoe crabs, but I've never seen this. And there was the horseshoe crab and then littler horseshoe crabs we're on top of the big horseshoe crab, just riding them back into the ocean, like piggyback, like wee. And I don't think I can explain accurately how gorgeous and how weird it was. The marks in the sand were absolutely gorgeous. I thought it was an art installation. And then the little just straggler horseshoe crabs piggybacking each other back into the ocean by the hundreds. I was like, what's going on? This is wild. And I didn't know at that point. I'm like, I don't know. And then I learned that only once a year, usually once or twice, but it's only in May to June, during the full moon, horseshoe crabs mate and they have an orgy. I read NPR, uh, National Geographic, very reputable, reputable sources do describe it as an orgy because do it so rarely and they form basically the one female horseshoe crab is bigger than the males and the little males crawl up on her back and they form what are called huddles. And so a single female horseshoe crab might have up to 13 smaller male crabs climb on for a ride. And then she basically spirals around and tries to shake them off. And that's what those spirals were. <laughs> Um, only happens during the full moon in May and June. And there were just so many of them. I, in looking this up, cause I got home and I showed everyone these pictures and they're like, what's happening? And they're like, we learned it's a full moon. They had an orgy. Um, marine biologist, Keith Rudder says, we just love the whole phenomena of how once a year they do this incredible mating on the beach. I don't know how anybody can watch this and not get excited about nature and science and how things work in the world. So that's my weird thing was the one time I accidentally got to be privy to a once a year horseshoe crab orgy. So when she's trying to knock them off, like, is it like the winners get a chance or is that, are they mating during that spinning part? It's a matter of fertilizing eggs. So the other cool thing is then there are just so many eggs. They're emerald green. They cover the beach like it's the Wizard of Oz. And so she's spir spiraling and spitting out eggs and they get on top and they're trying to fertilize them as they go. So I know you're trying to describe this as really majestic and beautiful, but in my mind, all I can see is like a bunch of Roombas Having they like a you look like Roombas. Bumper car, right? It's like it's like fossil dinosaur Roombas <laughs> fighting in the sand. It's majestic. Majestic. 
just brings a tear to your eye. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I brought in, I knew this would be question, which is why I brought in a quote from a marine biologist <laughs> about how it's incredible. And I don't know how anyone can watch it and not think it's majestic. So you'll have to take not my word for it, but Keith's expert's word for it. <laughs> culture pop culture all right I'm gonna try real hard <laughs> to contain myself because all right I, I have told you a little about these books I'm gonna try to make my actual pop culture discussion be something kind of adjacent to this just so I don't um I don't know go on and on and on and on and on and four hours from now you all will be like Michelle please stop talking about these books all right so I just read an absolutely remarkable thing and a beautifully foolish endeavor, which is a duology, a two book series that is done. It's complete. That's all there is. And um, by Hank Green, which is one half of the uh, Crash Course guys, the brothers that do Crash Course. Oh yeah. So um, these are works of fiction, and I'm going to give you a real quick rundown of the basic plot. But I'm going to try not to spoil it, even though I really, really, really want to talk to somebody about these books. So the basic plot is that a young 20-something who's kind of has like a design degree and is sort of languishing one day in New York, walks outside and notices a gigantic statue of like a transformer style robot. And she's like, huh, that's weird. And her friend runs a podcast and he comes over and does a video of her talking about it. And that's really cool. And then they go to bed. And when they wake up the next morning, they are famous because that transformer robot, that exact one appeared in like 30 different cities overnight at the same time. And then we find out that like its body is made of a substance that isn't found on earth. And so now like there's all these, are these aliens and all this stuff. And then um, people start having a collective dream. So, um, and our protagonist, April, was the first one to have it, but it eventually spreads around the world. And anytime anyone goes to sleep, they experience the same thing that anybody can experience. And it becomes a giant collective escape room. And eventually they find out that like the, the puzzles are designed so that you have to work with people who are not like you in order to like, so there might be like multiple languages involved or, um, like you might like one of them you needed really specific knowledge about accordions and it wasn't like that you could go google accordions you wouldn't have even known it was about accordions if you weren't an accordion player right so you like it was just really like you have to talk to other people you have to work together to solve these things so it becomes this thing where our protagonist april is being held up against a man named peter petrowicki who is like harnessing the kind of right-wing conservative response to these which is fearful right which is like these aliens are we need to arm ourselves we need to prepare these this is an act of aggression they've hijacked our brains what more will they do and um april our protagonist is like no they're trying to make us work together they're trying to make humanity better like they the and she names them the carls she's like the carls are here to help us so there's this huge media war over whether the carls are good or bad and it's just very clearly a parallel for like lots of things that are going on in the world. And it has tons of very smart commentary about social media and how information is spread. And I'm not going to say too much more because it will spoil the books and you're going to read them. But um, it gets it gets real heavy, but in a way that is like, it, it's very smart. Did you read The Circle by David Eggers? No. Don't. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> so it, it was it was like a social media's dangerous book, but it was so just on the nose, hammering you over the head with the point in a way that was like, like at one point there's a shark tank that's supposed to be like a metaphor for the, for the people who will take up power. And it was like, and then the shark just ate everything. It just ate everything. It just killed everything. I'm like, we, we get it. We understand. We like, you've, you've done it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This book felt like it was trying to do some of that same work in a much smarter and much more nuanced way. Since I can't talk too much about the text of the book, which I will as soon as you have read it, I wanted instead to talk about the hope punk genre, which is how I found this book. <laughs> okay, everyone, we don't talk about this beforehand. <laughs> My research thing, spoiler alert, I'm literally going to ask you to fill me in on hope punk. <laughs> Done already then. Done. I okay, will hold on. I get to my research. I'll be like, and here's where I was going to ask you about. Hope How Punk. about this? Because I I have a second thing to say about this, and I will just save my description for hope punk genre when we get to research. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> um. Wonderful. So I'm one of the things going to annoy you by being like, now educate me for my research. <laughs> so one of the things that I um. Thought about because this book has literally like every single thing that has happened to me has made me think of this book since I finished reading it. Like I'm just connecting. It's the it's the lens through which I'm viewing the world right now. But I was reading about um, Brendan Fraser's comeback, which has just been. Have you seen Have you seen this? No, I did not know he was having a comeback. So he is having a comeback. Um, he's going to be in a Martin Scorsese movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. Um, and he also has some other big projects coming up. And I don't, do you know the Brendan Fraser story? Like what happened to him? No, I didn't know something happened to him. I so, know he just kind of went off. So he had, he had a really, really hard time. So I had to write about this for one of my ghostwriting gigs. So it's fresh on my mind. Um, so he did The Mummy and he injured himself doing his own stunts during the mummy. So when they did the mummy too, like people really made fun of the CGI in the mummy too, but it was partially because he was like, I can't like, I can't do this again. Like it, I am damaged. Like you're going to have to figure out some other way to do some of this. And so he had to have like multiple surgeries on his back from, from that. And um, then like his, his, I think his dad, one of his parents, I think it was his dad died during the same, like, so there's a lot of stuff, but um, most like disturbingly, he he was sexually assaulted by the president of I can't remember what the film, one of the big film like academies or whatever. Um, he was sexually assaulted by him like at an event. Like the guy like grabbed him and like pushed his hand up and like just like he's the, Brendan Fraser has gone on air to describe it and he was like it really 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 messed with my head. Like I was, I felt very violated and I felt very ashamed and I felt like, and so he eventually came forward and talked about that and he kind of got blacklisted. And this guy, the guy admitted, he's like, I just gave him a little pinch. Like he, he just really downplayed it. And like the, the Academy, whatever it is, I can't remember the name of it, but they like, they never said the guy didn't do it. They just said that it was like, you know, it wasn't intended the way that Mr. Frazier took it or what, like, it was just very, very disturbing. And so that was part of what, so all of those things together, he just sort of stepped back from um, Hollywood for a long time. And then like a few years ago, there surfaced a picture of him, like just looking like a human being, like just, you know, thinning hair, heavier than he was 
age, like, you know, when time passes, you happen to age. How crazy is that? Right. Wild. And, um, somebody tried to make fun of him. Like somebody was like, try to put it against a picture of him. Like when he was from younger and like shirtless and it was even Photoshopped and like, then put this picture next to it and was like trying to make fun of him. And the internet collectively said, fuck you. No, and it has been going ever since. Like people are just like, coming out hard to support Brendan Fraser and say, we want you to have a wonderful comeback and you deserve a great <laughs> career and we are here for you. And like, it's just been really like nice to watch. But this book made me think about how like it could easily have gone the other way, right? Like there was some weird little tipping point that made the inner, cause people who want to make fun of Brendan Fraser's appearance are still out there, but they just, they lost the social capital, right? Like somewhere it tipped that the, the conversation, the narrative that is going to get pushed and going to get heard and going to get seen is the positive one. And I want to figure out why, because we need to do that more often. And so I'm just in this book, the, an absolutely remarkable thing in a beautifully foolish endeavor. I keep saying a book because there's really one story, but um, this story really, really, really dives into that. Like how calculated, it reminds me of kind of like the Hunger Games, how, you know, like you see behind the scenes, how they're turning Katniss into the symbol and like how even the people that you're sort of rooting for are being really manipulative. There's some of that too. Like how, even when we are doing the right thing, we have to do it in some pretty creepy ways to get heard in today's culture, right? And so I'm just, that's, I'll, I'll, and yeah, I'll talk about Hope Punk when we get to your research. Oh, and I think you're leaving, if you're leaving off, you're leaving off on something we will also pick back up on about intention versus action (laughs) and a certain television show. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So are you leaving off and we'll save lots of room? Okay. um, My pop culture is going to be pretty quick. And I know when we have to wrap everything up. Everything's going to fit beautifully. And then there's going to be this. And I apologize. I apologize in advance. This is the stupidest pop culture. But pop culture is so fun. It can be fun. It can be stupid. Um, But it did combine. You know, I love a high-low combination. High culture, low culture. Love it. And this week, um, those two worlds of me loving high culture and low culture collided in a way that absolutely delighted me which was I follow um, a person named Jack Fervor on Instagram and they are a New York based writer and choreographer, but also had an amazing documentary. So I've been following their career for a long time because they're really great. And I want to kind of read to you to start their kind of bio so we can get a sense of who Jack Fervor is. So Jack Fervor is a New York-based writer, choreographer, director, as I stated. Their genre-defying performances, which have been called so extreme that they sometimes look and feel like exorcisms from The New Yorker, explore the tragic comedy of the human psyche. Fervor's darkly humorous works interrogate and indict an array of psychological and sociopolitical issues, particularly in the realms of sexual orientation, gender, and power struggles. Fervor's works have been presented in New York City at the New Museum, The Kitchen, so many more, like too many to name. So many awards, acclaims, been presented internationally, nationally. A professor at Bard College, guest faculty at NYU. They've taught at SUNY Purchase. 
They set choreography for Juilliard all the time. And they've appeared in numerous film and television series as an actor. So that gives you a sense. Very, very performance artist, dancer. So do you remember like probably early aughts or like 2005, 2006, 2007, around then, after high school for us, um, like the Starburst and Skittles ads, when like that kind of postmodern absurdist advertising really took off. What Remind me what the Starburst Skittles ad were like, was like. So ads that would be like, like the Taste the Rainbow ads where everyone just would turn into Skittles. Yes. Or they, like weird, just weird yeah. for the sake of weird. And well, I'm going to like the Sour Patch Kids where they were like, um, like actively licking it and being first they're sour, then they're sweet. And the little candy's being mean to you. And then you, then it's like cuddling up to you. I think those are almost too normal. Too normal for this okay. message. That's like a sour and sweet message. This had no message. Oh, no message. Okay. It'd be like the Skittles would be like, I, I can't even think of a Skittles one right now. It'd be like taste the rainbow and there'd just be a cow in a field licking. Yes. Yes. I remember these. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I will ask you about a specific one. Do you remember a Starburst ad that was selling berries and cream Starburst? And I'll set it up for you. I'll also play a sound clip. Basically, there's people are waiting and one guy says to the other, hey, do you want these berries and cream Starbursts? And out of nowhere, like a Victorian ghost child comes out, a full man dressed as a Victorian ghost child. And it's like, berries and cream? I'm a little lad that loves berries and cream. And it's like the little lad commercial. Do you know that Starburst commercial? He basically comes out and says, did you say berries? And they're like, it's berries. Berries and what? Berries and cream. And he's like, mommy, I love when mommy gives me berries and cream. And he does a dance and it's like, berries and cream, berries and cream. I'm a little lad that loves berries and cream. Berries and cream, berries and cream. I'm a little lad who loves berries and cream. Berries and cream, berries and cream. I'm a little lad who loves berries and cream. I definitely have not seen this. <laughs> It's so absurd. It's just really weird and has no message. And it took off. It was very popular. The little lad who loves berries and cream um, spawned many other commercials, even a commercial where he teaches you how to do his little lad dance. And I, it's on YouTube. I encourage everyone to go look it up and it'll take you right back. I showed it to my husband today and he went, oh, 2007 was so different. It's, it was such a different world. It really was. All this to say, um, look up that ad. And if you remember it, you do. If you don't, you don't. But it's a weird ad. Um, I was listening to a podcast that Jack Ferber was doing because I like following his work. And at the end, the people started saying, like, plug what you're doing. Where's the little ad going to be? And they started poking fun of him, the host. And he's like, shut up. No. And I was like, what is this little lad thing? And I put it together because he has a very specific look. Jack Ferber, noted choreographer and dancer professor, is the little lad. What? From the Starburst commercial. What? And this has become like a thing. And so the little lad on TikTok, the sound is a hugely popular thing. But also now there's becoming a thing this poor person 
teaches. And now like TikTok age people is like the students are finding this, finding out it's him. And now there's all these like articles about Jack Berber is the little lad. And And he's managed to keep it under wraps this whole time. And there are many, many like Reddit things about like, yeah, (laughs) I'm a student of theirs and does not appreciate you doing the little lad dance in class. So I don't know if this is such a specific meeting of things of this little lad Starburst commercial and Jack Ferber that anyone else will be as delighted as me. But I was so delighted, A, to remember that commercial and B, to know that this dancer that I really, really love was the little lad. That's all there is to my pop culture, but it was the unspinning. I think I know how we can connect it, but I'm I'm just going to let it hang for now. Okay. So yeah, that brings us, that brings us to, where does that bring us? Oh, research. Research brings us to research, which might, might sound like it's almost over, but I don't think it is. I think we're about to go on a wrap in. Grab your popcorn, get settled. All right. My actual research thing is not very long, but I don't feel as bad since I have to talk about Hope Punk. You're going to come in more. (laughs) So my research thing, I'm going to be totally honest. It is not researched very well yet. Um, I just like, so I did do research for like my actual job. I'm teaching a writing class. I'm teaching adults how to teach writing like homeschooling parents and guardians, how to teach writing. And um, today's session was about the connection between reading and writing. Oh, listen to me. I'm going to totally talk forever. Okay. <laughs> talk forever, forever. I can already hear it. I can hear it. Right. <laughs> so I, my, my talk today, my class today was about the connection between reading and writing because reading and writing Due to a lot of things, I won't go into too, too much detail, maybe, we'll see, um, has have been cleaved, right? They've been pulled apart into separate subjects and so that there are like teachers who teach reading and teachers who teach writing and those are somehow separate disciplines. And then you end up getting all of these reading assignments that don't have any writing with them. So you don't have a way of kind of checking to see what the student has really learned in a meaningful way. And meanwhile, the writing assignments are disconnected from any real context. So they're not genuine or interesting and they're kind of soul sucking for everyone, including the teachers. And so it's just, it's really, it's not good. And so for several years, but especially picking up steam in like the mid, not well, like like from like 2014 to 2017, there was a really big push for this to reintegrate reading and writing, especially at the like entry level collegiate. Because one place where they're really still separate is in um, remedial classes in college, where there's like an entire thing where these students have to take all of these remedial reading classes and all of these remedial writing classes, and it turns out that like a student could be in college, paying college tuition, usually getting Pell Grant money, which is its own part of this, um, for two to three years without ever earning a college credit, because these remedial classes don't count as college level credits. And all of this research showed that it wasn't working, like that, like literally less than 5% of students were making it through to graduation. And I mean, it was in, it was in the low numbers for even those that made it to like 
complete three credits in college or whatever. And so a bunch of um, Katie Hearn is probably the one who's most famous for this started creating integrated reading and writing programs that just really shortened the amount of time that students had to spend because they combined the content. But it makes sense to combine the content because reading and writing are not separate processes. Like they are part of the same cognitive whole, which is communication. Yeah. Like to take in information and to put out information is using the same, you know, synapses and skills. And so I was looking into some research to help explain to parents why this was so important for them to do, to, to kind of integrate reading and writing. Um, and part of this is because I sometimes get in trouble with a certain segment of the homeschooling population, because if somebody asks me, like people all the time are freaked out that their kids are not going to be good writers. It's one of the things, writing and math are the things that like homeschool parents tend to be like, oh my gosh, I have to make sure I get this right. Like, I don't want to, you know, make my kid not have the skills they need to succeed in life. And reading and math are sort of the, or writing and math are sort of the ones that get held up as that. So as a writing teacher, I often have people come to me and be like, I'm really worried that I'm not doing enough with my kid. What should I do? And, and then I'll ask like, how old is your kid? And I'm like, oh, eight. And I'm like, just, just read to them. Just let them read. And I sometimes get people who like roll their eyes and like, oh, you're one of those. Cause there is a, like, there is a segment of um, the homeschooling population, which I'm, I'm not wading into that debate um, that are kind of unschoolers that don't do any like official curriculum and don't really do a lot of lessons. And that's not me. I'm an academic. I love academic, like I don't love academia, but I love the <laughs> a long um, conversation before we started recording that would dispute that sentiment. <laughs> I love academics, right? Like yeah, I love yeah, academics I, and academia are very, <laughs> very different. Yes. I love, you know, nerdy assignments that I wouldn't do if somebody hadn't assigned them to me. I like, uh, and I, and I, I love a syllabus, a beautiful syllabus. I love a thing syllabus. Beauty. So I bring that into my own homeschooling. Um, but I don't start bringing in formal writing instruction until about fourth grade. And the reason for that is, is because there is nothing, nothing, nothing that you can do there's no worksheets you can buy. There's no lessons you can make. There's no flashcards you can do that will better create foundational writing skills than reading a lot. Like there just isn't like you cannot, you cannot worksheet your way into understanding sentence structure better than just reading a lot of well-written sentences and making meaning out of them. So when I say just read to them, what I'm really saying is reading and writing are part of the same whole. So all of that reading work you're doing is foundational writing work. Like so, and they need that. They need that language internalized. They need those sentence structures. They need that exposure to vocabulary. They need that being able to hold contradictory thoughts in their head and make some sense out of them. They need all of that before they can get formal writing instruction. And so the best way to give them all of that is to read a lot. So all of that to say, I was looking up um, research studies about reading and integrating reading and writing. And I came across one that is called Bringing Together Reading and Writing, an Experimental Study of Writing Intensive Reading Comprehension in Low-Performing Urban Elementary Schools. And it was a study by multiple people who went in and looked at um, a failing, basically, school with fourth and fifth graders, and or maybe it's fifth and sixth, but that age group of it, uh, around there. And it was a low-performing low student's 
And basically they were like, oh, well, let's try giving reading instruction with these think sheets, which are basically like guided worksheets that students filled out. They really drew attention to like authorial choices in the readings they were doing. And then they just saw without any direct instruction that their writing got so much better because they were thinking about the choices that went in to creating reading that a reader could understand. And so like just being like having that veil pulled back really made them better writers. But my research thing, which isn't even, again, I don't have like a lot of data about this, but it's something that I've witnessed is that often these kind of pedagogical experiments are done in low performing schools because like, it's like, they're like, well, what harm could we possibly do, right? They're already failing. So let's just go in and give it a try. And I mean, I, I am all about pedagogical experimentation yeah. and innovation. And I, I don't think we need to stick with some sort of traditional thing just because that's the way we've always done it. And I like experimenting and innovation, but I think that it's really unfair how often the students that are being put through these really short-term, pro like, because even when they work, then you, the resources go away when the research yeah. goes away, right? It's yeah. like, oh, we did this really cool thing in your school for a year and a half and- It worked great, bye. Yeah. We'll take it to other people. So uh, I don't, like, I, I, my research thing, I guess, is just how innovation and experimentation in education, which is really necessary, is also just very mired in what I find to be an unethical and questionable practice. I mean, that's the history of research and innovation, right? We look yeah. to medicine and that's horrific. We looked at everything uses those just people. Whoever can protest the least, right? Exactly. Personal horror story about the urban charter schools that promise the moon and the stars and don't have the training and don't have the education behind that. And like, but there's just so many charter. And even when the charter schools like are okay, so many of them just shut down. And then those students had been promised like this curriculum that would grow in a particular way that's non-traditional. And then they don't have the skill set that the school that they're now going to have to be funneled into yeah. will just shut down. Like, it, I don't, I mean, I just feel like there's some responsibility to seeing like, this is, this is a kid's life there. My research is that I'm mad. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing good research. If you get angry, that's <laughs> how we got to agreement. Yeah. And again, I'm angry and I agree with you about this angry in agreement this is a classic agreement <laughs> I have a lot in my research to draw you in with I'm ready first off is I have been like I mean who hasn't you know to the point where I'm getting prescribed ketamine I'm not really but by the internet um been in a huge funk I I always I always most of my whole life we've talked about it a lot, have mental health issues with depression and anxiety, especially, but I've been in an existential crisis for a while. And I think that's not rare right now, but I don't think I even realized how much I was in an existential crisis um, of just being like, how my view of the world is really shifting in various ways. And I got kind of yoinked out of it by you. And last podcast, I mentioned that I loved the show White Lotus and I made you watch it and you watched it immediately. Like within a week you were done. 
And you sent me some texts and you're like, ah, and um, we were talking a little, I know that you hated it. You found it like an engaging show. It's not enjoyable. I found it to be very uncomfortable and very like cringy and like, ah, um, but you, <laughs> you wrote, and I'm going to link it in the show notes because it's perfection. You wrote, although I have so much, so much to talk about, but I won't even talk about it all here. You wrote a really good, very long and opened you opened a medium account just to put it there i'll suppose i'm like it's this is way too long for facebook i guess i'm gonna start a medium account so that i can rant about this tv show yeah um because you had such big feelings about it it. big feelings and i always teach my students um if something makes you angry you need to explore that And then I felt like, whoa, because I watched it. And again, it's not a show that makes you happy. It's not a feel-good show. It makes you uncomfortable. Um, And at the end of it, I won't do like spoilers, but at the end of it, not much changes. And that made me go, yeah, that's how power works. That's not surprising. What did we expect? Great realism. And Michelle wrote, a multi-page medium article giving lists about intent versus action and morality. And it made me really, and go read it because it's so good. Um, Watch the show. There are spoilers, I think, but if you want to watch the show. I definitely spoil the show in that medium piece. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it made me go, okay, Michelle and I see the world pretty similarly And when you have someone, we've been friends most of our lives and we've somehow managed to like grow up into adults that still like get each other and see the world very similarly. So it's very interesting to me when there's something that's so different. I'm like, okay, what was this? I want to explore this. And while I think it's basically that I've gone into a Nietzschean funk, the show is very Nietzschean in some ways. And I'm like, yeah, there's nothing that will change. I mentioned I've been working on an edited collection on absurdism and with absurdism kind of is, you know, there's no point, you know, there's nothing. And yet you go on, you continue. And I think that I clung to that so much as maybe I just let myself roll over into just existentialism where there's no point and I'm done. Cause you get tired for a while and the keep going on, keep going on for no purpose is hard. I read through your piece and long story short, we can talk more about White Lotus and what you think about it, but it really made me go, whoa, do you really think like nothing will ever change, Catherine? Do you really think that? Do you, and whether or not that's what you believe right now, is that how you want to face the world? And it's not, even if right now I'm like, nothing's going to change. I can't do anything. I can't keep waking up every morning thinking that. And me loving that show and you having problems with it made me realize just how far down that path of waking up every day and saying, what's the point? Nothing matters. I don't want to do that. So thank you, Michelle. I'm trying to be more mindful of that. Thank you to White Lotus and Michelle. And like overall, even in this short time, and I'll tell you more of the things that are influencing this and the research into it, I did. Um, But like, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling better. Like, like I'm feeling better in that getting out of bed every day is better, but then like, I'm crying a lot more and I'm feeling worse all the time too. Like I can face the world more and I can do things, but oh my God, everything is also so much harder, which is also something for my research. I have thoughts on, but what really helped me concretize this. And I'm going to read from this real quick 
is an Instagram page called Dark Academia, which is like D-A-R period academia. And um, the person who runs the account wrote, I'm going to read it verbatim because it really helped pinpoint all this for me. They said, recently I read an essay that kept me up at night and that piece was Under the Weather by climate journalist Ash Saunders. And it left me with an unsettled feeling in the pit of my stomach that I found myself struggling to shake even weeks later. The personal essay tells the story of Sanders and a mentor of hers, Chris Foster. Sanders recounts how both she and Foster have struggled for much of their adult lives with a gripping sense of impending doom, a depression deeply tied to their grief for a world lost. She writes about the newly coined terms for environmentally related mental health problems like eco-anxiety and climate grief and suggests that these conditions should not necessarily be viewed as disorders, but rather the only reasonable response to a world experiencing catastrophe. Um, But equally, I know, and this is still quoting, I know what it is to watch someone you love feel crushed by the weight of the world and to feel helpless in lifting that burden. This person writing this again, not me, I'm 22, barely out of college, and already I've seen more friends than I could have ever imagined fall into deep depression, magnified by their care for the world and the way they felt helpless to stop the suffering within it. I know the way depression closes a person off to the good and spotlights the bad, how it sows seeds of shame and self-doubt and sits back to watch them grow. I wish that I didn't. Depression tells us that we are at once powerless and culpable. And therefore, the only logical response is to disengage, turn inward, eschew connection, a response which only serves to reinforce the oppressive systems like racial injustice and capitalism that are truly responsible for most, for a lot of the suffering, right? This is kind of context-based depression. They're not talking about- um, Like clinical, yeah. Like clinical depression. So in one of my final college classes over Zoom in spring 2020, my professor, environmental anthropologist, Miles Lennon, led us through a discussion of Braiding Sweetgrass, the awe-inspiring book by indigenous scholar, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Kimmerer writes of the endurance of indigenous peoples. Despite exile, despite a siege 400 years long, there is something, some heart of living stone that will not surrender. The climate crisis is not the first time a people has faced the end of the world. As we navigate this latest existential threat, we would do well to listen to Kimmerer and other indigenous leaders. As my professor put it that day, existence can cohabitate with collapse. It's not one or the other. And then this post ends with, I know that hope is not a happy accident. Hope is a right we must protect. Hope is a discipline. And so that made me as I was trying to like wake up and not be this person who's like, yeah, white Lotus is entirely right. There's nothing to be done. Um, I read that and said, yeah, okay. Like that hope is a choice and hope is a right. That was also especially on my mind and sorry to ramble, but I had all these conversations. Like I said, I was at the beach with my family and I had a lot of just um, interconnecting things happen. I will leave most of my family members nameless because I don't know if they would want me to identify these conversations, but I went on a walk with someone and it was wide extended family. This could be anyone. Yeah, you Um, don't know know if she's talking about you. You know, but one of them who I love dearly, who is kind of, who's so uplifting, who just puts you in the best mood, who if you are having a bad day, they're better than like a bouquet full of puppy dogs. And 
we were walking and I said something to that effect, like, you know, you're just so good in the world and you make me so happy. And they went, well, yeah, I guess it's because I'm not very smart. And I went, what? Because they are brilliant. They're also very smart. And it really hurt my heart. And I was like, no. And I said, what do you mean by that? That's just not true. And they said, oh, you know, um, the connection between being smart and being intellectual and happiness, there's a connection. And if the smarter you are, the more intellectual you are, the less happy you are, period. And I guess because I'm happy, I'm just not smart. And I was like, no, 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 no. And of course, society tells us, right? The myth yeah. of, of the um, mentally unstable. You have to be uh, on the abyss of some crisis and spiraling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so much great art is about that kind of sadness and unhappiness. Ignorance is bliss. But mm, this happened. I had a toothache. And I was being a bitch about it. Put me in a bad mood. I yelled at my husband over like plastic wrap or something. And I felt very bad about it. And I did it more loudly than I thought to where my mom came in and she's like, everyone can hear you. And my husband was like, it's okay. You have a toothache. I understand. I told my mom that and she's like, yeah, you know, when I'm like that, your dad's very understanding. But my dad had had a horrific toothache that whole week. He couldn't even eat. It was so bad. And we knew that. And yet he was so kind and he never lashed out at anyone. My father, who is one of the, if not the most brilliant people I know, is always kind. He is the kindest person. He sees the best version of the world always. And so I started watching that, knowing he was in pain. Um, and there were things I would say. I don't think I'm like a totally negative person. But I said something and he went, well, think about this. What about this? Have more kindness and patience for people you don't know all week. Yeah. And so I knew the whole intelligence happiness thing was bullshit. I knew that. But this kept happening. And so it's not like it's not some contest of like kindness or hardship, but just like he makes this choice to be so kind and understanding. And I think sometimes people have a fear that if they're nice or kind, people will pull one over on them. Or yes. Yes. And I'm like, no, my dad, you know, he knows when people treat him a certain way. I mean, I don't know, you know, but it's like, it's not ever like he's being taken advantage of. He knows what is happening. He just doesn't care. He would rather be nice to you then be mean and no, let it happen. I had, uh, like somebody was asking, somebody came to my door asking for money and I ended up like giving her and like, I don't remember who I was talking to, but I was like, Oh my gosh, you're such a sucker. None of that story was true. And I was like, well, like, I'm not saying that I believed it. Like that I, that I'm sure, like, I'm not going to try to defend like, yes, it was, she was telling me the truth, but like, if she wasn't, then I'm no, I'm no worse off. Right. Like yeah. her pulling one over on me doesn't reflect on me. Like I, I, me choosing to put kindness into the world in that moment was my choice. And that was the choice that I made regardless of what had precipitated before. Right. Like, like, yeah. which feels better than what you're going, you're a liar, prove it. No money in the door. Right. Like never feel good. So exactly. Exactly. So I am now, so just 
having that kind of behavior modeled for me, I I saw this week how that create because it's not in a bubble to have someone who is modeling that kind of kindness and creating that space around them creates this energy that is so powerful. And I'm getting choked up because it was a really great week. I hadn't seen my family in a long time. And then I was in the same kind of pain as my dad with this stupid toothache with our soft Irish teeth. And he was just being so kind and it's a choice and it is so hard. It's so hard. And so um, thinking through how hope and how kindness is this. And it, I feel like that's such a simplified thing, but it, it's no. been very hard. Because I mean, so. it's, it's a simplified statement, but it's not a simple thing to do. It's, no. it's not a simple thing to do. And I think people do a lot of times be like, well, I want to be smart. I want to be in control. I don't want to be, have one pulled over. It feels so much better to be nice. It feels so much better to say, it doesn't matter at, in the end of the day. It, you do feel better when you're kind and you do feel better when you're happy, but it's hard. It's hard to have hope too. Well, so hope, go on. No, go ahead. So just hope. Like hope. I tried to research hopefulness. Um, I read the one Instagram post and I am, because of that Instagram post, reading the book. Have you read Braiding Sweetgrass? I have not. I have. I have it on my to read list, but I have not read it yet, but I know it about it. It's been recommended to me a million times, especially shout out to my friend, Jess, because she's really been like, read it. So I'm finally reading it. And again, this thing where I feel better about the world, but also everything is making me cry. I read the first 10 pages and I was just weeping. And then a weird thing happened because <laughs> it's about, it's a lot, it's by an indigenous woman and it's very much about like understanding indigenous ways of learning and I'm weeping at it. And I'm like, oh my God, I feel like a character in White Lotus who just had a good like scalp massage. So I am trying to look into how to be hopeful. And so right now I'm having like hopefulness modeled for me by my parents. Also, I'm very excited with kind of, um, it, it kind of works with that indigenous learning and hopefulness. There's an amazing on TikTok um, account who's getting a lot of traction. I'm seeing her everywhere, which I'm excited about called, um, she's called the Black Forager and her name. Oh is yeah, Alexa that was Nelson. almost, um, that was almost my pop culture thing, actually. Love her. I won't talk about it much and I'll show link notes it. There is on September 19th, the New York Times is doing a free webinar with her and a couple other people. Ooh, so I didn't know that. excited about that. So I am now Team Hope. I want to research hope. And again, this is making me feel much more vulnerable in certain ways. And I'm trying to research and think through that vulnerability. And so... I'm going to tie this up and then I'm going to ask you to help me with my research by telling me about Hope Punk. But basically I read right after this when I'm like, okay, let's go Hope. Um, but then I'm feeling really open. So I read in Vice, they were talking about, I don't even know, but this stood out to me. They said, this is a common sentiment, despite the allure of a hot back summer, it's all getting to be too much. In a recent article in Vox, Anna North wrote about the Delta doldrums. People are tired. It just feel like folks kind of want to curl up in a ball and take a nap and wake up when this is all over. One clinical psychologist told her, 
Um, the Delta variant arrived at just the right time to break our spirits. So, right, it was this combination of it's the the pandemic has been going on so long, but we had so much help from the vaccines yeah. that when that didn't work, I mean, they do work, the vaccines work, but because but it didn't uh, return us to normal right. the way that we had hoped. Yeah. That, um, and because Delta is so much worse that that really, that hope we had made a return worse. And that made me think, sorry to ramble, but there's a um, writer who I really love named Mark Fisher, who was a British author and he was very pessimistic, very existentialist dread. And he wrote about um, technology, cyberpunk stuff. And his last piece of writing though, people were like, wow, this is so different. It was a work called Acid Communism. And it was an oddly hopeful manifesto for like psychedelic liberation. And everyone was like, that's really hopeful. And they started lecturing at a university in London and the lectures from that are super hopeful. People are like, he's back on track. He's opening up. He has a new worldview, a new lease on life. And they, this art, this um, obituary of his spoilers in the New Yorker says, it's difficult to separate Fisher's own struggles with depression from his critical outlook. He was not inclined to do so in any case, frequently blogging about the relationship between mental health and modern life. The depressive, Fisher writes, is one who is totally dislocated from the world, who does not labor under the fantasy that there is some home within the current order that can still be preserved and defended. And so the article asks, what is the connection between close scrutiny of society and your ability to live within it? But his scrutiny that was negative happened in older works, and then they became very positive, and then he killed himself. Aww. And I just, and I told you this might sound like a cry for help, but it's not. But I am interested in these, these ideas of when you can open yourself up to hope. It's, it's almost, um, that can be so, that can open you up for like a worse fall. And that's not something I feel that's happening, but I just am interested with like the Delta doldrums, with Mark Fisher, with why people, it's just so hard to choose hope. And I think I want now your guidance on what's hope punk and how can, what is your research on hope you know about now that I'm being a hopeful person? So I, I don't know if this is so much research, it's just personal reflection, which I have spent a lot of time thinking about this because I am somebody who is impacted deeply by like the works of fiction that I, like, I, I, I will, I will dwell on them for a long. So like, I have to be kind of careful about what I consume because I can, I can feel, I can take on the weight of fictional worlds and, and really change my mood in a way that is, I mean, kind of powerful by, by, by what I watch. Right. Um, and this is not just like, Oh, like I can't watch gory stuff. Cause it makes me like, I, I can't actually watch gory stuff. It doesn't bother me at all. It's more like which themes I'm, are going to be in my head for days or weeks. And it's like, am I, re do I really want like, for instance, I have not watched the handmaid's tale because I really want to. And I'm like, I just can't do that right now. Like I can't, I can't have that be where my head is at day in and day out when, with everything that's going on in the actual world, that's already consuming all of the, like, I can't do it. Um, and so for a while I was like, okay, well, I should just, I should just use escapist 
Um, like I should just watch like nailed it and the floor is lava and stuff that is completely out of any time and context. And I couldn't do it. I was like, no, this is, of course you could. <laughs> I'm like, this is stupid. <laughs> Sorry. Anybody who loves nailed it in the floor. Like they're cute shows. I understand. It's just not for me. It's just not my thing. Um, so I was like, well, what do I need then? Cause like, what, what am I looking for? And that's when I found somebody talking about hope punk. Um, and I have since just started Googling like hope punk TV shows, hope punk movies, hope punk punk books. And I've been filling my life with them and also realized that a lot of my favorite stuff prior to knowing the term hope punk was hope punk. Like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is hope punk and the good place is hope punk. And like, so well, as soon of- as I read your medium piece, I'm like, she does love the good place. <laughs> <laughs> this is very... White Lotus is not the, it's the opposite of the good. White Lotus is not hope punk. It is not. And so, um, especially when I'm already kind of in a dark place, I sort of will only watch, um, I, I, I will kind of like say, no, you can only consume hope punk. You can't, this is not good for you. Um, and so hope punk, I'm pulling up a Vox article from 2018, um, that calls it the latest storytelling trend. And, kind of connects it to the whole like resist movement against Donald Trump. And so, so that's sort of where they're drawing, drawing it out of. And they went back to a Tumblr post from 2017 that said the opposite of grim dark is hope punk declared Alexander Rowland, a Massachusetts writer in a two sentence Tumblr post in July, 2017, pass it on with this simple dictum, the literary movement known as hope punk was born. Depending on who you ask, hope punk is as much a mood and a spirit as it is a definable literary movement, a narrative message of keep fighting no matter what. If that seems too broad, after all, aren't all fictional characters fighting for something, then consider the concept of hope itself with all its implications of love, kindness, and faith in humanity it encompasses. So I think what's happening, like what it is for me is that hope punk does not ignore the dark realities of the world. So it's not escapist, right? And it is not blind-eyed, Pollyanna-ish, everything's gonna be fine. It is, oh my, like we are at war and I'm gonna keep being in this war because I think that we might win. Like, and, and it, I mean, that's sort of the, like, the idea is that you your optimism becomes a weapon. Like believing that you could make it in the end becomes the weapon that can't be taken away from you, right? Because like, if you can just hold on to like, yes, I realize that you have done everything to break this. I realize that you have done everything wrong and I'm still gonna continue to hope. I'm still gonna continue to believe. So I also really obsessively love the final speech at the end of the first season of True Detective, the Rust Cole speech. Yes, who doesn't? Come on. I want to, do people not like that? I mean, I just feel like I, whenever I try to talk to people about it, it is very much like, yes, Michelle, we know it was a great speech. Shut up now. Um, so- <laughs> you have not talked to me about it, friend. I'm angry and agreeing with you once again. I love so, it. Like I, like that speech, like I've probably watched that speech like 50 times. And I feel like that is hope punk, right? Like for those of you who don't know, uh, this is going to spoil the first detective of True or the first season of True Detective, but it came out a very long time ago. So I feel okay about that. Um, There's this bizarre and very dark saga of uncovering a disturbing, like 
ritualistic murder ring. So it's these two detectives that are working on this case over decades and both of their lives are just really negatively impacted by it. They're very like, it's, it's not a happy. And even when they, they get the killer, when, even when they solve the crime, like it, nothing has really changed. Right. Like, I mean, in that way it is kind of like the white Lotus and that it is. And um, Matthew McConaughey's character is very, very beat up and leaving a hospital without permission, like with, you know, just deciding he's just going to walk out of it. And um, what's, what's the other actor's name? Is it Woody Harrelson? Is it? It's, I think it's Woody Harrelson. I think it is. Is pushing his, his wheelchair. And these two have had their fights, their ups, their downs. They did this together. They didn't speak for years and years and years and years. And, um, Rust Cole is the character's name, is Matthew McConaughey's. And he gives this speech about how when he was a little kid and he was looking up at the at the night sky and he was would see all of the darkness of the sky around just the little twinkling lights of the stars. And I can't remember exactly how Woody Harrelson's character puts it, but he's like, oh, so, you know, the dark is always winning. And, and he's like, no, we were looking at it the wrong way. Every time, every one of those little pricks of light is when somebody punched through so like the idea here is like you don't have to win all you just have to punch through your hole right like it's not your job to do all of it but it's your job to do your job right like and and I just like I'm I'm tearing up like I know that I sound hokey and I don't even care you don't Michelle I don't care either because I love it and it's your (laughs) job to do your job like yeah you just you just got to do your part like and you know you're gonna mess it up and it's gonna be unsatisfactory and the world is still gonna have all its problems but you you can't quit you don't get to you don't get to quit you have to do your job and in that sense it does align with my absurdist stuff because I'm trying to move absurdism out of like old white men territory and says it's a very privileged thing to get to quit. Like who gets to quit? Who gets to have faith? Those who don't, you have no choice, but how do you make that still a choice when you don't have a choice of going on? You don't have, you don't have the privilege of having faith, but you go on. I I think that merges with hope punk where you say, well, that's your weapon. That's your secret weapon. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, And hope punk. So I think that's very hope punk. I feel like the end scene of True Detective is very hope punk, which is interesting because I think the rest of it is pretty grim dark, which is the literary descriptor. This is from that same article, a literary descriptor for genre texts and media, which evoke a pervasively gritty, bleak, pessimistic or nihilistic view of the world. And they give examples of Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. Um, which I don't, The Walking Dead is like, I also wrote a whole blog post about breaking up with The Walking Dead. And it was largely for this very reason was because they just kept, like they would get to some sort of like, oh, we did it. Oh, let's just put, let's just put everybody back in the same kind of peril so they can have learned no lessons and repeat all of their bad habits. Oh, we fixed it. Oh, let's just put them in a different set of peril so they can repeat. Like it's that that never changing, right? That like everything's always the same in the end. And Mm -hmm. I got so frustrated. I was like, I'm done, I'm done. Done, done, done. Pacific Rim is on here as an example of community building through cooperation rather than conflict. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer that shows that the uh, fight to achieve human progress has no fixed happy ending, that it's something you have to always do, that you have to, which was also 
um, a major point in the good place, right? That like, it's just something you have to do over, like, you just have to keep working at it. You just have to keep going. Like you, you don't ever, you don't ever win like the good person trophy that you get to put on your shelf and be done trying to be a good person. Now you have to just keep doing it forever. And, um, yeah, so hope punk. That's that's what it is, and you need I more of it. I love it. I love it. We have to collab sometime and write about how hope punk and absurdism are very. I'm into that because the definition of optimism that I'm working off of is: is there is an end point that you're working towards? There is a goal you win, and so that you can't really say if hope punk says there isn't, then it can't be. It's not optimistic in that classical sense. Thank you for dragging me out of my existential depression, Michelle, because of your dislike for a TV show. Just another service I offer. Long, medium posts that four people will read. (laughs) Yeah. And I just like, I really think that we've got to stumble through all that. But at the end of the day, we have to do our work. Like, yes, you have to do your work. You can't. And you can't do someone else's. I think, ooh. Because one of the characters who you're like, this person did the most harm. I'm like, but they had such good intentions, Michelle. But they weren't doing their own work. They were trying to do someone else's work. I didn't think about it that way. And the only couple at the end of the day, the only people I think who are actually happy at the end and actually make progress, like, were they just doing their own work? I mean, yeah. Yeah, If we're talking about the same couple, yes. They were, and I mean, and it wasn't gr- great for anyone else, but it's something. It's something. Okay, now we're just rambling into like no one's. Okay, so let's wrap up four weird things we had. We had, sorry, let me go back up. We had Zoom immersive views, Bishop Sycamore and whether it is actually a school and horseshoe crab orgies. For pop culture, we had? For pop culture, we had, um, oh my gosh, I've already forgotten because it involved Brendan Fraser's comeback. Well, it was about Hank Green's duology, which is a punk. Which is a Hope Punk book or it set of books. It was a Hope Punk book set with the corals. And it did, I liked the side note. I liked learning about Brendan Fraser and how can we make that tipping point, the tipping point for more things. And then we also talked about um, <laughs> the berries and cream Starburst ad, which stars noted dancer and choreographer Jack Fervor as Little Lad. A Little Lad. <laughs> And for research, we had the tendency for education. Well, we talked about the division of reading and writing and how that isn't a real thing. And then we talked about how um, a lot of times innovation and experimentation in um, education happens in the most vulnerable populations and how that is probably deeply inequitable and problematic. Very. And then we uh, talked about my, my research was on hope. And I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. Hope. Okay. Well. You said you thought you had something with berries and cream. Well, I was just thinking about how he didn't want that particular image of himself and the social media 
what had decided that that was kind of the narrative that they're going to run with and not really caring about how that impacts him as a teacher. And like, because I bet the people doing it aren't trying to be harmful to him, right? They're just having fun. They just think it's delightful, but not really considering what impact that has on this human being who is living out the, like, what does that mean to have to now have that as part of your identity? Um, And how that connects to what we're talking about with like Brendan Fraser and who gets to decide what narrative goes forward. And so I feel like there's a connection there. Yeah. And then I'm trying to think of that. This, mm, I feel like we've talked about stories you tell yourself versus like who sees you. And last week it was audience. Yeah. So I think like the narrative you want the world to see versus the narrative that's told about you fits for everything. But I don't know if we want to go there. Like, Does it fit for the horseshoes? Were they, were well, they crafting a narrative for you? <laughs> <laughs> the horseshoe crafts where they like play there's some beautiful color. markings in the sand they're like no we're disgusting we only do this once a year don't look at us <laughs> um oh my dad just sent me a really great text about eight out of ten cats speaking of see open. just making the world a happier place one text at a time yep he needs um, to start a, um, like a sub stack so we can all subscribe to to just get happy Oh, I know. I learned about ducks that can talk from him. It's a whole thing. And yet I didn't choose that for my weird thing. So, okay. Um, wow. We're both quieter than usual. This one was... Well, I think this one is so open. Yeah. Because like Zoom immersive views are trying to make you feel connected to each other. (laughs) I'm just looking at that Bishop Sycamore story. Oh, that one's also, I mean, okay. How about maybe there's something with unknowability? No, but I was going to say like the unknowability of things. And then when you see a little bit of insight into the, or seeing, Switching perspective, maybe. Or even like intentionally using perspective to present a inaccurate view, right? Like kind of subterfuge through perspective. I don't, I don't know that the horseshoe crabs were trying to trick you into thinking it was art, but like some sort of, they were. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, the subterfuge like duck rabbit stuff, using the duck rabbit purposefully against people. Or maybe it's about who's hidden. Who's hidden? So, okay. So the school, the school experiments, it can do that because the charters or because the, the students in low performing urban schools are hidden from the same kinds of oversights that would keep this from happening in like a higher performing suburban school, right? Like the parents, the administrators, that level of protection isn't there because for the kids that are getting these experimental things, they're sort of hidden from those, from those checks. Right. And uh, the little lad was hidden from. Yeah. I mean that, how that works is very interesting that that commercial was kind of a time before commercials were on the internet frequently and the fact that that then yeah it used to be you could do a commercial 
in your early career and no one would really know about it by the time you got famous, right? Like it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a big deal by the time you were a recognizable name. Yeah. I really wonder if he was younger now knowing the career he wanted, if he would have done that. And then um, there's all kinds of stuff about, you know, hiding. Well, I mean, the Carls are hiding their identity when they appear in a absolutely remarkable thing. And that's what causes all of the um, arguments about it is who are they? What do they really want? Um, the, <laughs> the fact that it was horseshoe crabs and their orgy that had made those beautiful marks was hidden from you, right? Until you did that some research. Yeah. Lots of things about horseshoe crabs are hidden. Like you look at them and like you said, they look like dino Roombas. You don't realize they have electric blue blood. You don't realize they're creatures that could ever have you don't think of them as sexual beings. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they're all of a sudden on the, uh, by the light of the full moon. And then it could be like things that are hidden that do come to light and shift your perspective really radically in, in, in just really unexpected ways. And that's not a nice type message, but the fact that like, there is something to that, right. That like, I'm on the beach, I see little marks, and then you like what you realize what it is, and you're like, whoa. And the little lad, and you realize who that is, and you're like, whoa. Is it something like the world is bigger than you think? Not even bigger, but I feel like this really can be tied very well to the Rust Cole. Is that his name? Yep. Okay. That does sound it's such a good name. It sounds almost fake, and I know it is fake, but. Um, the Russ Cole speech, right? Because that's definitely a perspective shift of stars, the light, dark, duck rabbiting, light and dark. Um, and then just not even me watching the TV show or you watching the TV show, but us sharing the perspectives of watching the TV show made me look at my whole way of being in the world the past like year. Going like, whoa. So the world... So just like this perspective shift, seeing things differently or things hiding, we have to work on that front part. Something about lenses, maybe? Lenses. Oh my gosh, that brings me back to like grad school. Oh, I kept using lens and my teacher would be like, why, when you use words, they have meaning. And if you're not talking about vision or ocular thing, don't use the word lens. She was a scholar of photography, so... (laughs) like lenses are lenses <laughs> like well I think they can be metaphorical and I'm like I know it's a pretty storied use of them that way it's why it stuck with me I'm like lots of people use that as a metaphor it's like getting mad for me saying I'm gonna frame it this way right right frames are what go around paintings did You're you get out some wood and nail it together being a bad art historian um so lenses can make the world oh we could just way dumb this down we could have like one of the most simple things for like one of our more complex long conversations about something about like telescopes be like use a telescope on the world man change your perspective with a telescope or a magnifying glass metaphorically metaphorically because those things are fun (laughs) go look at the stars 
I like that you think that's a short and simple one because it went on. I know. <laughs> you open the portion cookie and it's a scroll. Scrolling, <laughs> Keep run, going. Scrolling, run, scrolling. <laughs> fortune cookies says man a lot <laughs> oh yeah but we're all I, I i think we're almost there right so it's something about telescope. change your perspective by change, change your perspective by shifting the lens change your perspective by make your brain a telescope Make your brain. I I would be happy if I got that as a fortune cookie. Make your brain a telescope. <laughs> I accept. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I feel like this is one of the weirder ones we've done. I know. I I feel like it's one of the, the best conversations we've had for a podcast, but I don't know how it's going to turn out. Yeah. I I have learned the most through making this one of any of the ones we've done. And I'm, fe- I'm leaving it feeling uplifted and like I can take action, but I'm not sure how it translates for you all. I'm sorry. How was this? Sometimes we have to do things yeah. for us. Yeah. Really crawl inside our heads and telescope around it there. Go ahead. Okay. That's it. Till next time. Bye-bye.